Hello and welcome to this podcast, Yes, I Have a Voice. My name is Ruth Lewis-Cost and I am a caregiver and I am blessed to be looking after my elderly parents. I started this podcast to remind ourselves that looking after those in need is a privilege. As unpaid caregivers, we need to have a voice. We need to be able to shout loud and be proud of our status. And caregiving has no age. People of all ages are caregivers. This is my way of supporting you all emotionally and practically with tools from other caregivers on how to find the joy in your situation and make amazing memories. So let's dive into this week's episode. So today I'm with Denise Brown and Denise is in Chicago. Now she develops trainings for uh, family caregivers, former and current, and also other people who are in the caregiving industry. So I'm wondering, Denise, how did that start? So I guess it started because of a concept developed in 1997. I had already been working with family caregivers for seven years, had started a business to support them in 1995, and then really thought about what if we staged the caregiving experience. So I developed this concept that stages caregiving into six different stages. So as family caregivers, we go through six stages. It is fluid, it's not set in stone, and people really resonated with this ability to think through our caregiving experience. What I think is important to know is how we are when caregiving begins is not how we, who we are when caregiving ends. And so this idea of staging the caregiving experience helps us understand the difficult emotions that we experience in, during our experience, because we, we just think, oh my gosh, how did I become this terrible person that is filled with so much anger? Well, it's because caregiving is that hard. It is that stressful. It is that overwhelming. Our response to our caregiving experience is normal. And that's part of why I wanted to develop the stages. But I also wanted to put a roadmap, so to speak, thinking through what can we do today? And then what can we plan for that could happen tomorrow? So the concept had been on my website for several years. I got a lot of feedback. I tweaked. I adjusted it. And then in 2015, a colleague reached out to me and said, I want to teach this concept and I want you to teach me how to teach it. And so that was the first iteration of creating certification programs for family caregivers. So after that request, I started thinking about, well, what is a training program that would help individuals consult and coach family caregivers? So I use this foundation of the six stages to create this training program, which now is our certified caregiving consultant training. And individuals who go through that training really learn how to be with a family caregiver during the worst times of their life. Oftentimes people will tell us it'll be better tomorrow. Well, you know what, usually it's worse. So we don't need to be cheered up during our caregiving experience. We need to be understood. But the reality is when we know someone in a difficult space, we want to fix it. We want to pull them out. In our training program, I really teach people how to sit with a family caregiver, how to really be right next to them, to understand their view of the world, their experience throughout their day. 
And then when we really understand what a family caregiver is going through, what they're experiencing, then we can better offer ideas and suggestions. Because it's also frustrating when you've been in a caregiving experience for a long time and have done everything you can to find resources, to reach out for help, to get support, for someone to just jump in and say, well, you know what you should do? I mean, if we could do that, we would have been doing it. So it's not because we're not trying, it's because it's that hard. And when someone takes the time to really understand why it's this hard, then that professional can offer insights and ideas and suggestions that are truly appropriate. I think it is such a necessary thing, but I'm a bit curious because at the time you started this, you were not a caregiver yourself. So what actually prompted you to start something like this in the first place? So I'm a writer and when I graduated from college, I was writing for trade magazines. And I wrote for different trade magazines between 1985 and 1990, and no one read what I wrote. And it just struck me that there's gotta be something out there I could write about that actually would be useful and meaningful, not only to the reader, but to me as the author. So I quit my job and was in a situation where I thought, okay, well, I'll look for freelance writing gigs. And then I thought, well, you know what? I should have something that's part-time, so I have a cash flow. So I found this job working in what we call here in the United States, a congregate meal site in a small town in New Jersey. I lived out East at the time. And it was a, a congregate meal site for seniors in this little town. They would come and have a hot lunch at noon. We also delivered meals on wheels. And that was my first experience doing this for a summer of really meeting the adult children who were worried about their parents. And then I got promoted to manage a respite care program for this rural county in New Jersey. And I would go to the homes of family caregivers to set up respite services. And honest to goodness, these stories were so compelling to me as a writer. I just couldn't get enough of them. So it really started a different career path for me. And then after I had been working with family caregivers for about five years, I thought, gosh, there's got to be something we can do to better support them. So I actually started a print newsletter. So I married what I knew from publishing with what I knew from family caregivers. And I created this print publication called Caregiving. And I published it every month for 10 years. In 1996, I launched one of the very first online caregiving communities. And that was how I really started connecting with family caregivers in a more intense way, because I also launched online support groups. So every day I was in communication with family caregivers. So I was learning so much from them. And then in 2004, I thought, I want to be a better support for them. I know that I am reaching people during really difficult days. I want to make sure I'm at my best when I connect with someone who's at their worst. So I took life coach training and I actually pull out what I learned in life coach training and apply it in our certified caregiving consultant training program as well. So it's a combination of consulting and coaching. And then the insights around the personal caregiving experience that I've really gained over looking at family caregivers as my teacher for three decades. And I love the fact that you, you have been helping caregivers and you mentioned just before as well about how um, you know a lot of people you have come across over the years they've been sort of very angry in all for all sorts of reasons which absolutely you know is very very understandable but 
they have tried their best, their utmost, everything to find the help they need. And it's almost impossible in some cases, or it takes so long. And it's something that seems to be not country specific. It seems to be across the globe of the people that I've spoken to. It's just, there is no support for the caregiver. There's plenty of support for the person who is needing the care, but for the actual caregiver, there's very, very little support. And it takes people like you to, to do that help or to offer that help. And I feel that this is something that is just, it's so wrong that it should be so difficult for people to find. So interestingly enough, just before we started our podcast conversation, my mom fell. So this morning I was helping my mom get up. I was giving my dad a COVID test because he doesn't feel well. And then we were managing visits from hospice and then my dad's home health agency. So my mom receives hospice services and then my dad has a visiting nurse. I had just posted on LinkedIn, honest to goodness, a minute before my dad called and said, your mom fell, can you help me? I had posted on LinkedIn this article that talks about how many days of work we miss because we're caring for our family members. I had just posted this long rant about how hard it is. And then this happens. I have been reading the comments. I took a few moments before we started today to read some of the comments. Someone, I'm always fascinated what people say. Someone said to me, I don't think we should really talk about family caregiver burden. Why is it such a burden to care for your parents? And I said, I'm not burdened by caring for my parents. I'm burdened by a system that yes. does not help and support me. It's this system burden. But I thought, how in the world could you take this rant about the system and turn it into me? In many, in many ways, he was kind of saying, well, you're a victim here and you shouldn't be a victim. Why is it so hard to take care of your parents? And I thought, well, it's hard because I have been chasing the hospice services. They have not been calling me back. They have not been timely. It was because of an emergency that we had a visit from the hospice nurse. It's those kinds of situations. How much we have to take on within the system to make the system work is absolutely exhausting. Absolutely. And there's a term for it. It's called illegitimate tasks. And they talk about it in the workplace where you have something that's unreasonable or illogical that you have to do. Our caregiving experience is full of Ill illogical, illegitimate tasks. Sorry, I'm still a little, uh, it's illegitimate tasks. So thinking about, for instance, starting hospice services with my mom, I've had to call them every day to request a nurse to come to visit and they don't call me back. My mom's life is ending. Why am I fighting so hard to give her a good death? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And it's not fair to anybody. It's not fair no. to her. And it's not fair to no. you. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm not burdened by caring for my parents. I'm burdened by the system that makes it impossible for me to get a good night's sleep. So last night, I could not sleep thinking about what am I going to do about this hospice provider? How am I going to find another one? And then their doctor is a nightmare. So I need a doctor's order. How am I going to circle around to get the doctor to order for another provider? Oh, 
Oh dear! Obviously, that person has never actually had to look after anybody. That's the that's the short answer to that one. <laughs> has no I, idea. I mean, <laughs> right? Why would you say that? Is what I mean. Where we we experience all these really difficult, stressful, overwhelming situations, and then we talk about it, and then someone comes in and minimizes them. Mm. It just adds to our frustration. It does, but at the same time, really, we should just. Let it go because that's their problem, not ours in a way. So coming back to the fact that you say you're looking after your parents, obviously, as things have turned out, you have become that caregiver for your parents. So when did that start? So my dad was diagnosed with bladder cancer in 2004, and we managed his cancer for 11 years and then it spread. So he had surgery to remove his bladder, one of his kidneys, his ureter, and then he had unrelated prostate cancer. So he has anostomy. He has, he needs help with managing his new output of his urine, I guess would be the way to say it. And then my mom had a significant internal bleed in 2015. My dad had had a stroke after his major surgery. So he told my mom to take aspirin. (laughs) So she did. And then she had this terrible internal bleed from which she has not recovered. And then she has Parkinson's. So I started helping my mom more really intensely in 2015. So caregiving for me started in 2004, 18 and a half years ago. And are you the only one in your family who, who looks after them? So I have my sister and my brother. One of my brothers died unexpectedly last August, which was really difficult. And we have an older sister, but she's a nightmare. So we don't involve her, I guess would be the way to say it. Yeah. So for instance, today, when I went to my parents' apartment, and it was clear I was not going to be able to get my mom up, I called my brother and he came and he helped and he stayed through all the chaos of the visiting nurse coming, the hospice nurse coming my mom being crabby, (laughs) me testing my dad for COVID and just gave us a comforting presence. So my older, my other sister who's younger helps my parents three days a week. So I feel like we really have a nice system within the three of us. And then my parents, I guess they definitely are on the team. So the five of us have figured it out as best we can. That's good to hear. <laughs> and that's it, isn't it? Is if you have that kind of system, it certainly helps. It doesn't take things away, but it certainly helps. So moving forward with your trainings, how have you seen any changes between when you started and, and anything that was going on to help caregivers, family caregivers, when you first started in the 1990s to today? Is there a vast difference? Have many things changed? Yes. So when I started, there were actually just a handful of organizations that really focused on supporting family caregivers. And now there are thousands, which is great. I actually am reviewing grant applications for a program here in the United States that funds support for family caregivers. And it was really an awesome experience to read these grant applications because there's so much more focus on supporting the family caregiver. I think the challenge that we still have is that the system doesn't work together. And what's interesting 
It's the family caregiver is the only piece of the system that interacts with all of the pieces. We interact with the payer, the medical equipment supplier, the pharmacist, the doctor, the hospital, the home care agencies, home health, hospice. We are the only one that sees the full system circle. And yet we're not really in the system. We still have to get someone to order things for us. We have no power to order anything. We have to still ask people to call us back and then ask again. And even during a hospital, hospitalization, the healthcare professionals will look to us for what's going on, what are you doing, what do you need? But yet we're still not really part of the conversation. So that's what's missing. We're still not in the system. And that's where we need to do more work. Something that I wondered, and I'll ask you this question. Several years ago, I thought, well, what if family caregivers have a lab coat that indicates they are a professional member of the team? We aren't just a family member. We are professional. And I actually offered this idea during a patient advocacy event that I spoke at a few years ago. And afterwards, someone came up to me and said, I have an interesting story about the lab coat for you. His father was in a, a nursing home. There were problems with care. His sister went to the nursing home and started asking for some changes. She met with the director of nursing, the administrator, and said, I'm really concerned about my dad. I think we need to do these things. And they completely blew her off. So she left the facility, went out to the parking lot, put on her lab coat because she's a doctor, went back in, conversation completely changed. Everybody listened to her. Everybody took her insights and ideas very seriously. Everything changed because she had on a lab coat. So Ruth, I wondered, how would you feel if you had been issued a lab coat and were a designated professional on the care team? What do you think? That's a very interesting question. But if it takes just simply having a, a lab coat for people to listen to you, and take note of what you're saying, it will be 100% worth it. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) Isn't it crazy? I used to do a national caregiving conference here in Chicago, and I had a sponsor that was interested in actually issuing lab coats to our attendees. And we were actually going to do a workshop where we were able to decorate our lab coats in a way that they reflected our personality but she, she couldn't get the funding, so we couldn't do it. But I've always thought, wow, what would that be like if we could actually wear lab coats that reflected who we are? Just like the binders that we carry that include all the medical records and information. I've seen so many people decorate their binders to really reflect who they are. What if we did that with our lab coats? <laughs> it's a brilliant idea. I think it's just worth putting into practice and seeing how it goes. So, yeah. (laughs) So moving forward, where do you desire to take what you do, the trainings, the the developing of new trainers and the support for family caregivers? Where do you see that going in the future? You know what? Honestly, every time I have a situation with a hospice provider or a home care agency, I think, oh, I wish I had a lot of money to start my own programs and agencies and pilot different types of programs and services and see what works. If I had one, 
the mega million that we had. The lottery right now here in the United States is up to a billion dollars. So if I won that lottery, that billion dollars would go to really starting a hospice organization, a home care agency, even a hospital. I mean, there's got to be a better way. And maybe the better way is that we just start from scratch. But I don't have a billion dollars. So what I'm trying to do is just make sure that every family caregiver connects to the support that really takes the time to understand them and engage in a meaningful conversation about caregiving. A meaningful conversation about their experience changes the experience for them. That's what I find so fascinating about what I've learned in this work. It's a conversation that we crave, and yet it's so hard for us to find. But what if all of us had an opportunity to have that conversation about what's really going on and received help and understanding and support through that conversation. Ah, be amazing. I totally agree with you because that is really what's missing. I, I do agree with that. That's um, the one thing that I feel could be improved everywhere. Absolutely. So Denise, thank you so much because I think what you're onto is a brilliant thing and I hope you'll continue doing it. Whether you find that's million dollars or billion dollars or not, I hope you continue. <laughs> Thank you, Ruth. It was really fun to have a conversation with you today. And actually, it was perfect timing for me because you helped with support around what had just happened before the podcast. So I appreciate that very much. You're more than welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, if you like this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. It really helps. See you next time.